Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. The whole Christmas sweater idea sounds great, and then I remember that I'm tragically allergic to wool, and so <laughs> my throat's a little itchy. I'm just keeping it, just keeping it at bay right there. Um, so, yeah, um, Christmas sweaters and, and ugly Christmas sweaters. I mean, they've always been a staple of American Christmas culture, but. But we've acknowledged that they were ugly. The millennial generation really acknowledged that they were ugly. And, um, and it's kind of become a thing, right? And so we embrace that here at Renewal. Uh, a staple of my Christmas time growing up was uh, the Christmas uh, tape cassette. Any of you had tape cassettes back in the day? And so we had uh, an album by an artist named uh, Evie. Anyone remember Evie's Christmas album? Any real Christians in the audience? Just my family members? That's ridiculous. Um, and, uh, and we had this other cassette. I don't recall who the artist was, but this was a part of the Dieter Kids uh, cassette library. We had all these different cassettes of, uh, like, kids programs, Christian kids programs. Um, so, like, the Agape, they would sing songs about the fruits of the Spirit. And, and, um, and we had this one that was like a, a narration of a grandfather with a grandchild telling the Christmas story. And so, you know, the little kid's like sitting with a grandfather and he's reading the story from the Gospel of Luke and there's some Christmas carols tossed in there. And anyhow, this was a, a real staple of the Dieter family Christmas um, in, when I was growing up. Now a staple of the Dieter family Christmas is binge-watching horribly produced Christmas movies <laughs> online. Because they're just like a dime a dozen. I mean, you used to have to have Hallmark to get a horribly produced Christmas movie, but now... You can get B-rated acting and script writing just about anywhere. People are like, I can't believe it. These guys are suckers for this kind of entertainment. Um, so uh, the, the story from the Gospel of Luke that the, the grandfather reads, of course, culminates with the angels out in the field. The, the, the shepherds are out in the field and the angels are up in the sky. And they, they deliver this phrase uh, saying, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That's the King James. Maybe you've heard this phrase. Maybe you've seen this phrase posted on a banner somewhere, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And so I was remembering this week my first Christmas away from home. So when I was uh, 19, I spent my first Christmas away from home. I was in Australia, and I was doing some mission work with an organization called YWAM, and I'm hanging out in Australia for Christmas, and I end up having a conversation with uh, another believer, and, uh, and we're talking about Luke chapter 2, and this guy points out that uh, rather than saying peace on earth, goodwill to men, he says, you know what that actually says is, is glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to people with whom God is well pleased. And it was like this gotcha moment. And maybe you've been in theological discussions where someone feels like they know a little bit more than other people. And they're like, well, I know you thought you believed this, but guess what? You're wrong. And actually, it says this. And so, 
And so I'm like, wow, that sounds really different. Instead of peace on earth, goodwill to men, it says peace on earth, peace among men or to men with whom God is well pleased. I mean, peace on earth, goodwill toward men sounds really wonderful. I mean, it sounds like here's God. He's just pouring out his grace and peace and goodwill toward humanity on the night of Jesus' birth. Peace just to those with whom God is well pleased sounds quite a bit different, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds a little restrictive. And then I'm thinking to myself, you know, here I am at the time, 19 years old, a mature 19 years old. And I'm thinking, I have been, I mean, I fell in love with Jesus when I was in middle school. I've been reading my Bible, almost a daily habit, for, for years now. And I was like, I never saw this, I never heard of this before. How could I be so wrong about what the angels did? Everything I've learned up to this point was a lie. To be fair, I, I was reading the New King James, which says on earth peace and goodwill toward men, just like the old King James when I was growing up. Um, this is one of the first times in my life that I remember really being exposed to a couple of important principles about Christianity. One is that different followers of Jesus come away with very different interpretations of the same verses. Have any of you ever noticed that? People read the same verse, and they're like, that means I can do it. Other people read the same verse, and they're like, no, that means you can't do it. I'm so confused. You know, it, it stood out to me as I'm looking into this and trying to figure out what's the right version. It stands out to me that the people who do this kind of thing for a living, the people who make Bible translations, they can't even agree on what the original Greek author was trying to say. And the question that maybe we'd be coming away with when we read that verse, especially as a standalone, is I just want to know, who gets peace? Who gets it? Does everybody get it in Jesus? Or do just the people that keep God happy get it? Because that has some repercussions on how we live our lives, doesn't it? And maybe some repercussions on how we understand the gospel story. That's one principle. Christians come away with very different ideas, reading the same verses. Another principle. A single Bible verse is really insufficient for us to understand complex issues in Scripture. I think one of the problems that we run into in this verse is if we interpret it just standing alone, we maybe think that the reason it's included in Scriptures is so that we might know the mysteries surrounding who are those individuals who get God's peace and who are the individuals who don't. We really need to consider the whole witness of Scripture, the entirety of the Bible, when we're looking at a complex issue like who gets God's peace? What is God trying to do through peace? When this happened to me, this scripture out of Luke chapter 2 that had been a beloved scripture of mine, a staple of my childhood, it was like it was the Christmas story. That's what you read at Christmas. Luke chapter 2, shepherds in the field. Don't worry about the magi. They're not in there. Just read about the shepherds in the field, Luke chapter 2, and it ends with the angels saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What could be more Christmassy than that? But when this happened to me, something shifted for me where instead of being the Christmas story, this became a Christmas story with a kind of confusing and ambiguous ending that I began to become somewhat uncomfortable with. I, I said, I, I'm still not sure which translation is best. And, uh, and I'm kind of making the plan for teaching this year, and, oh, we got to do 
you know, a Christmas story and what would we do other than Luke chapter 2. And we'll read Luke 2 at our Christmas Eve Eve service. But, um, but what I've found myself doing when there's an obscure or difficult passage like that, I find myself just wanting to sort of push it away and not think about it or certainly not to talk about it. Especially because I, I, I cringe just a little bit thinking that maybe part of my job is on Sunday to bring a difficult passage to you and to, and to assure everyone that it's okay and it all makes sense and now we can all continue on walking out of here feeling like, one, we really understand it, two, we really understand God, and three, we're probably all still saved. Um, So what I'm describing then is a sentiment with difficult passages that tends to shy away from it, tends to think, I don't know if I really want to talk about that. But I think that what the Holy Spirit really wants to do, what God's point in having difficult passages of Scripture, I mean, if we believe that he somehow orchestrated the whole thing, then we believe that there's a purpose behind it. I think what his intention is for difficult passages is for us to lean into that a little bit. When we come across something that we don't really understand, to be okay just sort of holding that in our heart and saying, all right, I'm going to think about this a little bit more. I'm going to meditate on it, not because I'm looking for a single definite finite answer, but because I really believe that these scriptures are meant to draw me into a relationship with the living God of the universe. And it's okay if I don't fully understand him. I don't fully understand tons of people that I'm in relationship with in my life. That's just how relationships work, right? I don't have to fully understand the motivations of your heart to walk in a healthy and a good relationship. And I don't have to fully understand the reasons behind everything that you say for us to have a rich and good relationship. I really think that if when we come across passages like this, rather than shying away, if we'll be okay with acknowledging the difficulties in it, if we'll be okay with leaning into it and thinking about it, considering it, talking about it without deciding we have to be right and We hate you if you don't agree with me. I really think if we'll lean into it that way, we will find a a wealth of spiritual wisdom. I really think that in the end, God comes away looking grander. Jesus comes away shining brighter. And I really think our hearts end up being lifted into a a deeper relationship with him. One helpful place to land in the realm of difficult passages when considering scriptures and things that are hard, like the angel's song, is one, to just acknowledge that when the biblical authors use certain words, like peace, because they're so far removed from our modern context and our modern culture, maybe they don't mean the exact same things that we mean when we say a word like peace. Peace is a great example of this. I think when we think of peace, if I say the word peace and you think about it, probably an element of that that shines most prominent in your mind is the idea that there's no conflict. And when we say peace on earth, what we mean is just no wars, right? No one fighting with each other. We have peace in our family. We mean we get to sit down at the table together and there isn't tension. There's not passive aggressive remarks being made. We're just, we're, we're not fighting with one another. Sometimes it's easier for us to define a complex idea or to explain it by talking about what it isn't rather than what it is. I find this especially if I'm talking to you know, younger people or trying to explain something that's kind of difficult. And you'll say things like, well, peace, it means not fighting with each other. Or 
you know, the New York Times Wordle, it's, it's not a crossword puzzle, okay? I am not doing a crossword puzzle every day, all right? Rest assured, it's not what it is. Joy is not an emotion. To be faithful in a marriage means to not cheat. To be truthful means not to tell a lie. To be a peacemaker means to not fight with others or to not allow others to fight. But when Scripture talks about peace, and especially the original authors of Scripture, it paints a far richer definition than what peace is not. In fact, rather than focusing on what peace isn't, the focus in Scripture is on what peace is. The first time the Hebrew word for peace shows up in Scripture, it, the, the word is shalom, and, it, and it's used in uh, Genesis when God is communicating with Abraham about how God is going to bless his life. And the first time peace shows up is when God says to Abraham that he's going to live to a very ripe old age, he's going to be full of years, complete in life, and he's going to go to rest with his fathers in peace. Throughout the first few books of the Bible, this word pops up with these connotations of wholeness or completeness and number. Uh, it talks about uh, safety or soundness in body or, 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 or good, good welfare or good health. In fact, when people in, in the Old Testament would greet each other and say, how is it going with you? What they're actually saying is, how is your peace? It can mean quietness, it can mean tranquility, it can mean contentment that results from wholeness and completeness. It talks about harmonious friendship. People coming together and getting along, especially in, in human beings, agreeing with one another. It pops up when people are making agreements or alliances with one another. And it pops up when God is making covenants with his people. 700 years before the silent night in Bethlehem, when the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the coming Messiah, the time in the world when God is going to set everything right, he says in chapter 9 some things that are super important about uh, what God is doing. He begins saying, nevertheless, as he's speaking in the midst of lots of doom and gloom and a dark time in Israel's history, uh, he says to them, nevertheless, there is going to be no more gloom for those who were in distress because the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. When this Messiah comes, there's going to be no more gloom for those who have been in distress. These dark years are going to go away because the people who have been walking in darkness are going to see a great light. He says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given, and the government is going to be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The prophet proclaims that somebody is going to be born who is going to change everything. The people who have walked in darkness will see a great light. When this child is born, everything is going to change. And one of the names he's going to be called is the Prince of Peace. Now, it's funny because when I was reading that this week, and I'm struck by the alliteration of Prince of Peace, and I'm like, that's really clever how that works out in the English language, right? Prince of Peace just rolls off the, off the tongue like a, something to remember. I was astounded that it's the Shar Shalom. 
it still has alliteration in the Hebrew. Isn't that cool? Ah, oh, it's a Christmas miracle. The Shar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. This isn't a title given to someone who's going to come and fight the war to end all wars. This is what he's saying about a ruler who's going to bring wholeness and completeness to creation. He's going to bring a completeness to God's work of reconciliation and restoration. The assumption of the Old Testament is that humanity is, is hopelessly lost. That the world has been broken after this thing that happened in Genesis 3. That creation has been thrust into this state of chaos and fracture. And then the whole narrative of Scripture is about God taking that broken creation and restoring it. You could sum up the story of the scripture this way. God created paradise, a perfect place for humanity to live. Humanity messed it up and broke everything. And God went through anything it took, even sacrificing himself to restore that creation to wholeness, to make it new again. What does wholeness look like? Well, we have a picture of wholeness. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, God completes making everything. He says it's, it's good, and then he takes a day to rest in the goodness of his creation. And I think the image that we're supposed to come away with is this, this the creation's done, it's completed, there's a wholeness there, and so we have God resting in his completed work, and all of creation is there resting on the seventh day as well in the completed work of God. It's like this snapshot of, how things are supposed to be. And then we're meant to apply that snapshot of this seventh day of rest. There's nothing left to do. We're just all here together enjoying ourselves. That snapshot we're meant to apply to what God is now doing, what he's trying to bring creation back to, restoring all that was lost. When we read Luke chapter 2 in light of the whole Bible story, I think that what the angels are saying when they say peace on earth and whatever comes after that, I think that they're proclaiming that God's Messiah has come. They're saying the moment has now arrived. The Shar Shalom has been born. He's here and it's through him that completeness and wholeness are going to be reinfused into humanity. And the world that they've been given is going to be completed and made whole once again. I don't think the verse is meant to be this standalone reference where we would like, hey, let's look up and throw a verse at each other for who we decide gets God's peace and who doesn't. I don't think that's the point of it. I think the point is, hey, peace is on earth because the Prince of Peace has come to earth. And the message that the divine has come to earth, and this is a message of peace and wholeness and goodwill, is really important for the human beings who hear it in that moment. Because ever since the fall of humanity... When we've caught wind of God coming close, there's this fear and the shame inside of our hearts that God might be coming close for reasons that would be other than our goodwill and our peace and our wholeness. Humanity's perception of God was forever changed by the choices they made in Genesis chapter 3. There's a story of a crafty serpent who comes and convinces humanity momentarily that God is not present where they're at. And they seize on this moment of, of perceived isolation from God's presence to disobey him. You think about your own life and maybe struggles you've had with sin or 
or things like that. And if you are fully convinced that God is present there with you in every moment of your life, man, temptation has a whole different kind of hold on you, as in zero hold. The psalmist talks about God's presence. He says, where could I go from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I descend to the depths of the earth, you're there. If I was to rise on the wings of the dawn, you would be there. If I were to settle on the far side of the sea, you would be there as well. If I was to say, surely the darkness will hide me. If I was to hide and clothe myself in darkness, he says, and the the light was to become night around me. Even that darkness would not be dark to you. The night would shine like the day. The psalmist is convinced that God is present anywhere that he could go. Yet in this moment, when they're deceived by the serpent, the the woman Eve reaches out her hand to take from the tree, as if God's not present there somehow watching every move that she makes. And the man follows her, and, and she shares the fruit with him. They both eat. They disobey him. And in that moment, eating of the fruit, their eyes are opened. And they see that they're naked, and for the first time, humanity feels shame, realizing that they have disobeyed their God. And then the story says that the man and the woman heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Does anyone remember that phrase? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Only it doesn't say cool of the day. Gotcha. Oh. It actually says he's walking. They hear the sound of God walking in the cool of the day. But the word isn't cool. The word is the Hebrew word ruach, which is wind or spirit. When we read that verse out of Genesis on its own, we maybe think it's for the cool of the day, and maybe the translators felt like, hey, it's super important that you know what the atmospheric conditions were in which the fall of humanity happened. So we're going with cool of the day. And you're like, yeah, that's great. About 3 p.m.? Maybe. But when you read it in the context of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, you have the Ruach, the Spirit of God, hovering over the waters, about to bring order to all of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, you have the Ruach, the Spirit of God, the breath of God being breathed into humanity, giving them life. And in Genesis chapter 3, you have the Spirit of God present at the fall of creation. It's the same Spirit of God. And yet something has happened for humanity where the one who created the world that they live in and the one who gave them breath, when they hear that one in the wind, in the trees, they go, oh my God, what have we done? We're in trouble. I wonder if the original author of Genesis intended for us to make these kinds of connections when we hear the story. You know, throughout human history, wind has been a wonderful example for us of the unseen power. Something that we've never seen with our eyes. We can see the effects of it all around us, all the time. And for these ones who were in the garden in that moment, they've they've sinned, they've forgotten God's presence, and then they see the wind in the trees, and they're like, oh yeah, he's here. He never left. Oh no. He's going to get us. And although he's the one who, up to this point, they've experienced his breath giving them life, his breath speaking creation into being, 
In this moment, their newly enlightened human minds have a new idea about the Spirit of God. They believed the lie of the serpent that God was holding out on him. They believed the lying uh, portrait of reality that somehow God was in competition with them or or in a fight with them for the, the dominion of the world. And in their shame, they realized how vulnerable they were. And in the wind, they suddenly are reminded of the power of God, the unseen God to move things in the seen realm. And so they hide from him because they're afraid. Shame has pushed them into fear, and they're afraid that the only reason God might come near is to judge them harshly. I wonder at times if maybe this fear that can reside in the heart of humanity, that God would just come near to judge harshly, is part of the reason why the baby, right? Why the baby in a manger? Why the angels proclaiming messages of peace and goodwill? Maybe one of the reasons that this all happened is because we needed to experience that. To be convinced that when God comes near, it's good for us. It's a restoration of how we were created to live. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. The angels proclaimed good tidings because the righteous one has come not to judge, but to save. The righteous one has come not to be served by humanity, but to serve us. Not to rule over humanity, but to submit himself to death on the cross. Not to take a single life in judgment, but to offer up his life as a sacrifice for the many. To bring humanity back to wholeness so that all that had been lost in the garden would all be restored. Every lie that was brought into humanity's consciousness in the garden would melt in the light of Jesus reaching out a hand to heal someone or speaking a word of compassionate forgiveness or, or carrying out the mission that had been given to him to lay down his life for humanity. So that when humanity never experiences, or sorry, whenever humanity experiences the breath of God, when they see the wind, when they acknowledge that God is near, rather than hiding in fear, they would come running into the presence of the one they are convinced, created a good world for them to live in, breathed his breath of life into them, and is making all things whole and new again. I think one of the reasons Jesus came as a baby at Christmas was to transform the way that we feel about the wind in the trees. So that when we see evidence of God in our world, we come running, excited to be close in fellowship to the one who created us. We see evidence of this one who's completely committed to bringing us back to wholeness, back to completeness, uh, back to the place where the sound of God walking in the trees was a reason to run coming, come running rather than run and hide. As we uh, transition from this into the gathering at the Lord's table, I want to uh, just encourage you on a couple of things. One, embrace the idea that God is always present. I Many of you know that I um, uh, do some uh, ministry in a treatment center, drug treatment center up in Castle Rock, and so on, on Monday afternoons right now, I, I usually head up there on Monday afternoons and hang out for a while just talking and maybe we do some Bible studies and talking about recovery. And I was up there a couple of weeks ago and I was, I was talking with some of my friends who are in recovery 
and uh, talking about what people want out of life. And, and one of the things that we, we talked about was this, this desire that we have to just be okay. Like if I could just sit at the end of the day in a chair or a, a bench or whatever, if I could just sit and be okay at the end of the day, they're like, that's what I need, just to be okay. And because of maybe different trauma or different choices or different addictions in their life, of course, they're trying to fill that need to be okay, to be whole, to be complete with uh, drugs and, and alcohol and, and whatever else. And I always tell them all the time, like, I'm a Christian, so I'm in recovery. Are you in recovery? Yeah, I'm in recovery from my sin addiction. And I think any of us sitting here today, whether we're addicted to drugs or alcohol, can say, yeah, no, I am constantly filling my life with things that I shouldn't as I'm just, I'm just trying to be okay. I'm just trying to, to feel whole and content at the end of the day. I think what we're really grasping for is this idea of peace, right? The biblical idea of peace, that I would be complete. And I think we'll only find completeness in the one who came to complete humanity. And so each week we close our service gathered at the Lord's table and the worship team can come up. And whoever I stole this from, you can take it back. Josh, is this yours? I'll let you take it back. Um, we gather at the Lord's table, which is set with the bread that represents Jesus Christ's body and the cup that represents his blood. And, and we really believe that these elements that are sitting here, uh, there's real divine purpose in them being food. Because every day we eat food to replenish our body, to, to make our body whole, to to have the energy to go and do what we want to do. And I think in the same way that we as humans can embrace physical food, Christ is offered to us as the spiritual food that will make us whole. And so as you go into this holiday season, and especially as we come up and even just gather at the table today to receive communion, I want to just encourage you, this is the food that will make you full. The, the things under your tree, your plans for the new year, your plans for this, I mean, all of that stuff is maybe good and fine. But there's a moment that you have to really connect with the presence of God and to be able to just sit for a moment and be, oh, I'm complete. I'm at peace. I have the shalom of God because the shar shalom has come near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. You've given us everything. Before humanity took their first breath, you created a world that had everything they could ever need. Before each of us took our first breath, you provided everything that's needed, not just for our life here on earth, but for eternal life with you. Lord, we just rest quietly for a moment in your presence and we say to ourselves, this is enough. You are enough. You've set a table for us with the finest of foods, the finest of drink, everything that's needed to carry us through today and tomorrow, you offer it freely. And your invitation goes out. Come and eat. Come and drink of what I have. Lord, today as we receive 
communion, we just ask that each one of us would receive a measure of that completeness and wholeness. The appetites and the longings of our soul would find completeness in you. The angst and the desires in our heart would find contentment and peace in you. You're all we need, and you've done it all. Just receive your gift with grateful hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.